questions that Jesus asked, and of course he asked them to his the disciples. But by implication, we're all disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the questions come to us. So this evening, we'll look at probably, if not one of the very first of the questions that Jesus asked his disciples. We could ask, where was Jesus when uh, this question was asked? How far into his ministry was Jesus when the question was asked? How long had the disciples been with Jesus when the question was asked? And so we're going to read together, starting at Matthew chapter 4, and we'll start at verse 12, we'll read through to verse 22, and then we'll move on to chapter 5 and the first 13 verses. That's Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, as we look at these questions. Now when Jesus had heard that John had been put in prison, he departed to Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light, and upon those who sat in the region and shadow of death, <coughs> light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. So we move down to chapter 5, verse 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. 
Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who be before you. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavour, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Well, we have in many ways in that reading the answers to some of those questions. Jesus had just begun his ministry. Where was Jesus? Well, he was uh, Capernaum uh, by the Lake of Galilee. He had just begun his ministry, began to teach and preach, we read. And, and how long had the disciples been with him? Well, of course, they were right at the beginning of his ministry. We read there, didn't we, the calling of the two sets of brothers, Simon Peter and Andrew and James and John. And so we can just look briefly at a map to help us locate. We're looking here, focusing on the area of Galilee. You can see at the top of it, just under the word Galilee, Karazim, Capernaum, Genesaret, Magdala and other places. You can see just to your left, Bethsaida, uh, the Gergesa where the demon-possessed man was in Gergesene. We see also later in the Gadarenes down in the Decapolis area. You can see also Nazareth and the scripture we just read says that uh, Jesus left Nazareth and travelled again presumably by foot all the way up the lake of Galilee to the top of the lake to Capernaum. So this is where Jesus begins his ministry and in fact where much of his ministry will take place. I don't know if any of you can remember back to last August we looked at that video and we saw some of the area surrounding the Lake of Galilee. So here is a statement that Jesus makes after he's delivered we read the calling of disciples and we read also the um, Beatitudes there, uh, verses 1 to 12. And of course, it's generally accepted that what Jesus is setting out there is the character of the true disciple, very much giving us the highest possible standard of the Christian character, from poor in spirit to the persecuted ones. Blessed are you when men shall revile and persecute you or so persecuted they the prophets right the way through the whole gamut of these things and here Jesus in some senses in verse 13 sums it up he says ye are the salt of the earth is this the standard for the Christian to be the salt of the earth do we have to in some senses measure up to the standards of the beatitude well, of course, we would all pray that we may be sanctified to a degree that we may be some salt in the earth. But then Jesus goes on to add, but if the salt has lost its savour, wherewith shall it be sorted? We'll come to that second half a little later, but firstly, ye other source of the earth. This is quite a, a declaration by the Lord Jesus. Remember here, 
he says that his disciples went up to him and he began to teach them and so this is teaching again to the disciples to his followers ye are the source of the earth and one of the things that we can note from this particular statement that the Lord here sets out a great privilege for his followers they are to be the source of the earth it's also not only a privilege but a great responsibility Jesus is sending his disciples out into a corrupt sinful world to be salt and light in the darkness you see as Christians our presence in the world is to be a sanctifying thing isn't it is to be an influence for good in every area of our contact with it this is both a privilege as we said and it's both a responsibility there has to be in that sense some sense of purification some sense of cleansing through the work of Christians through the witness of Christians through the ministry of Christians through the ministry of the word by Christians in this world so it is not only a privilege granted only to the Lord's followers but it is also a great responsibility and of course it's not just a responsibility for pastors and teachers and elders it's a responsibility for every Christian to reflect the grace and truth of our Saviour, to be that light that's set on the hill, uh, that cannot be hid, but men will see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. And so we ask a question, quite an important question, how is this to be achieved? How is it that we can be the salt of the earth? We can be that cleansing, that purifying, uh, that savour uh, in many ways of life unto life. How is this to be achieved? If we are to be the antidote to the world's corruption, as it were, we must be different from and opposite to the corruption that we seek to heal. This is very important, isn't it? We can't be the same. We have to be the opposite. We have to be different from. You see, we must not merely be a better form of the world's life. And this is a problem for so many people. I live a good life. I don't do this, I don't do that. I even do this. But you see, that's just in many ways a better form of a worldly life. We have to be the witnesses to the divine life within and this is of course our daily challenge a challenge that we have to as the saviour said let a man take up his cross deny himself daily and follow me this is our challenge day by day see as professing Christians we are proclaiming aren't we that God has put his divine life into us this is the great gift of conversion, is it? That we have that spirit within us, that new spirit, that new life, 
that divine life, that eternal life, a life that seeks after Almighty God. So as professing Christians, we are claiming that God has put his divine life into us. And the reason he does this is that I, you, me and all professing Christians may be the channels by which we communicate to others that divine, that divine life. You remember when Moses came down from the mountain after spending those days with Almighty God, his face shone. There was a physical effect of being in the presence of God. And so it is for Christians, if we're living our lives daily in the light of the scriptures, if we're living our lives daily in communion with Almighty God, that there will be that divinity in a sense, not in the same sense as Almighty God and the Lord Jesus Christ, but there will be that effect that others will see. Not that we will be seen for living better lives, but that our lives may be spiritual. Now I think it was recently my ears are trying to remember what I heard but someone said about John in hospital that he was a spiritual man because he loved to sing and he loved to read the scripture and what a wonderful witness that was in his hospital bed and how many of us can say that this is the world's assessment of us that we are spiritual beings you see he works in me first. This is the teaching of scripture. He works in me first that he may work by me or through me later. And so this is in many ways the privilege and secondly the responsibility of being the salt of the earth. Paul writing to the Corinthians says this, Wherefore, come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord. And the, Paul is quoting there from the Old Testament. Come out from among them. Have nothing to do with them. We're in the world, but not of the world. And we should be reflecting the divine nature that is given to us at conversion. Be ye separate, saith the Lord. So then, comes the question if the salt has lost its savour wherewith then shall it be sorted this was the question the Lord goes on after making this statement after setting the standard in the Beatitudes he asked the disciples this question if the salt has lost its savour wherewith shall it be sorted and so here's a question, isn't it? Is the Lord suggesting that Christians can lose their effectiveness? Is the Lord suggesting that Christians can lose their effectiveness? Who's going to answer the question? Anybody? Okay. Yes, he is. And in so doing, he reminds us of the need to constantly review the quality of our spiritual life. Now, 
Last week, Mike gave us that wonderful insight into what we might call the principles and the practice of service. And tonight, I want to take up that theme in the nature of the quality of our service. We are to constantly here review the quality of our spiritual life. And we turn, first of all, uh, to the words of the psalmist. And the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, know my anxieties, and see if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And surely any analysis, any review of our daily spiritual lives should begin at this particular point. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me, and know my anxieties. You see, because in the light of that verse, those verses from the psalm, any review, any analysis, has to be completely honest, doesn't it? There's no good trying to self-justify parts of our Christian life or parts of our failings of our Christian life. And the reason for this is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? The Lord, I the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings, writes Jeremiah. So as we begin to analyse our daily spiritual lives, in a sense, in a review, then we realise that as we review, the Lord is reviewing. And the Lord is also seeing that the heart is deceitful, it can completely uh, deceive us, uh, help us to self-justify, help us to rationalise, help us to take away uh, the effects of our conscience. We can put our conscience to sleep, can't we? So these things, this analysis, is so important. So, let's be a little bit more practical. What might such a review reveal? Or what questions might I ask of myself? Well, start with this. Have I declined in my spiritual force? It's an interesting question, isn't it? Have I declined in my spiritual force? Is my, we'll go on to see, is my spiritual vigour any less than it was when first the Lord came to me? Is the reason for this decline rooted in some other issue which has contributed to the decline of my, to use this lovely phrase, my heart fellowship with Christ? This is essential, isn't it? That we have a heart fellowship with Christ. It's not just, in a sense, an on-the-surface fellowship it's not just reading the word it's not just in some senses coming in prayer but it is deeper than that it is a deep felt heart fellowship with Christ is my zeal for my master 
not so intense as it once was. These are all quite telling questions. It's easy for a preacher to stand up here and to uh, preach these statements and to challenge people, but of course I have to challenge myself as we all do. Perhaps it is for some of us who have been along on the road for a very long time, perhaps it's harder for us to maintain the standards that we once knew. Perhaps our bodies have grown weaker. Um, we don't have the energy that we had years ago, but that shouldn't necessarily take away from our day-to-day -day zeal and our day-to-day -day personal uh, relationships with Almighty God. Is my conscience not so keen or as as fresh as it once was? It's such an easy thing to rationalise, isn't it? To say, okay, yes, I know, but it's not that bad, really. And so-and-so and this is happening and that's happening. You see, I'm sure, I don't mean to be critical here, but I'm sure there are things that many, many Christians do today and accept as being acceptable that our forefathers would be absolutely horrified at. Um, but this, of course, is the way of the world, is it? This is the way of men. And it's so difficult for us to maintain such high standards. But it's important that we do challenge ourselves. Is my conscience not so keen as fresh as it once was? Is my spiritual vision now dim? Do we not see in that sense the Lord's hand so clearly in things? Do we struggle to discern his will because we're not so close? Our hearts are not so in tune with his will and his purpose. And are the reasons for this perhaps that I have less delight in time of prayer than I once did is prayer more easily set aside uh, to make sure that we're doing the things of the everyday. Spurgeon described the prayer meeting as the powerhouse of the church. And it should be, shouldn't it, that the church prays together as often and as frequently as it can, that we should be committed to come together, not only in our personal daily secret prayers or family prayers, but also together as a group of the Lord's people. Do we as a church, as a fellowship, have less delight in prayer? Or do we uh, accept that uh, it is essential, it is necessary, and in order that we should receive the will and purpose of God, that we have to come to him in prayer united? Do I not read the Bible? Is this one of the reasons? Do I not read the Bible with the same desire, with the same hunger that I once had? Do I want to uh, earnestly imbibe and learn and study the truths of Scripture to know again the workings of Almighty God through his revealed word? Perhaps the reasons for, in a sense, our lack of Spiritual, uh, spiritual decline or lack of uh, spiritual energy and force 
Perhaps the reasons are not necessarily lack of doing things, but a change of attitude and heart. Perhaps, to extend a thought really, I've grown out of touch with God. Although, and this is so easy for Christians, although I keep well away from the things of the world, the world's sin does not affect me, it doesn't appall me, it doesn't upset me. We don't feel saddened by the sin in the world as once we did. It's not so much of a horror to us because we become familiar with it. This is not God's approach or his uh, assessment of sin. Sin is sin, isn't it? You hear people say, oh, it's only a little sin or it's only this and so on. But sin is sin. There, there is but an absolute and that absolute is sin. There are no degrees of sin. And that the world's sin should affect us if our hearts are soft and tender towards the will and purpose of God. We should feel. And again, there are those who still use the forms of Christian speech that they've grown up to and accustomed to. These words, these phrases, these sentiments trip off their tongues because... This is the way they've always talked. But indeed, we use these words without much fervour. We're not so earnest in seeking the will and purpose of God. We're not so earnest in seeking to spread and to be the sort. We still hold to the saving truths, but they seem to be much dimmer and much hazier than they once were. You remember back to the days when the, the, the uh, doctrines of grace first burst on our soul in many ways. That we understood the glory and the magnificence of the sovereignty of God and the fact that such a God had stooped down to save our souls and forgive us our sin. Are we less enthused at the thought of the omnipotence and the omniscience in the omnipresence of an almighty God? Are we less enthused at the wonders of the incarnation and the work that the Saviour did upon the cross? I still hold, perhaps, to all the doctrines of grace and faith, but I defend them less vigorously and joyously. Even amongst Christians, there should be opportunities when we challenge one another to test things against the word of God and against the doctrines of grace and faith found in the word of God. Here's a thought I came across. It's a lovely thought again and very challenging and so easy perhaps for us to fall into and it's this. My understanding and my intellect may be as clear as a frosty night but my heart may be just as cold. And you remember Paul says, though I uh, have the tongues of men and angels, but a sounding brass and tinkling cymbals, I have not love, then it's of no effect. And he goes on right through 1 Corinthians 13, doesn't he? To compare the works of a Christian, the works without love, the works without desire to Christ, just the works in name only. My understanding and my intellect may be as clear as a frosty night. And we know how clear and sharp frosty nights are. We've seen them recently. 
but my heart may be just as cold. It's so easy for us to drop as Christians. They say familiarity breeds content. And sadly, if we spend our lives being so familiar with the words of the scripture and the doctrines of the scripture, we may lose the fire within. So how can this happen? How can Christians lose their spiritual force? Well, how does salt lose its flavour? The Lord uses the example, yeah, the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its savour, wherewith shall it be salted? How does salt lose its flavour? Well, outside influences. If you put salt in water or you leave it in the sun, or out in the rain, such uh, outside influences will gradually deprive the salt of its flavour. It will become less and less salty. And the same in many ways, I think, is suggested by the Saviour here. You see, my chief danger is that the subtle influences of the world around me may affect me, maybe very gradually, almost imperceptibly but we may be gradually and imperceptibly drawn away our fervour, our vigour, our zeal our hunger may be gradually undermined and taken away the influences of my social world and they tempt me to share in worldly pleasures this is so difficult for us as we live and move in the world, as we have to work in the world, as we go to college, to school, to the office, wherever our place of work is. And we are there in the midst of the world. But again, we read in the scriptures, we are in the world, but not of the world. And it's so hard and so easy to be absorbed, to be drawn in to so many things, the influences of my social world. Sometimes we reason it's good to make the way of discipleship as attractive as possible to the world, therefore I should meet it halfway. We're tempted, aren't we, to in some senses dilute the way of discipleship. We're tempted to dilute the way of conversion, the way of the gospel, in order to think that people will find it more attractive this is why so much of the church today practices contemporary worship because it thinks that the world will find it attractive and once you've got them in they can hear the gospel but it's a false argument in my view anyway we want people to come in but we want them to be drawn in by the work of the Holy Spirit to hear the truth of the gospel you see, as they, I've said, if we make the way of discipleship less scriptural, less spiritual, and more of a compromise with the ways of the world, this may help us to lead the world back to Christ. But of course, what happens is we're sucked in and we're taken in by the things of the world and not the other way not the way that we hope. Beware the spirit of the age, the influence 
of the intellectual world. Could go on for a long while speaking about this. But it is so subtle, isn't it, uh, that uh, so much is picked up and brought into practice by fellow Christians, by fellow churches. They do things because they feel it's, it's the way to do things today. Everybody's doing it. This is the way to do things today. But the way to do things, of course, is set out in the scriptures and we shouldn't ever diverge from them. So, having said all that, for sort to be effective, for it to serve its purpose, it has to come into contact with the subject. You have to put the salt into the pot with the potatoes in order to flavour the potatoes or any other vegetable that you're cooking. So for salt to be effective, it has to serve its purpose, it has to come into contact with the subject. And it has to be stronger than the subject. Its influence has to be stronger than the influence of that which is seeking to influence. It has to be strong, stronger than the subject. So we might ask the question, so we come to conclusion, what? Well, the Lord has the answer, doesn't he? We read it there. It's good for nothing. Nothing but to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. So one concluding thought. Why then does it seem to be today that the name of God and the name of his Son and his word are being trampled underfoot by men. This is, we acknowledge, don't we? It seems that sin and the work of the devil is so open, has been so successful in drawing men away from the things of the scriptures, in making all sorts of evil acceptable. The word of God and his name and the name of his son are definitely in this day and age being trampled underfoot by men. Why is this? Well, is it because the sort of the world has lost its savour? Remember the saviour said, ye are the sort of the earth. So it's important for us, I think, day by day as we go out into the world around us to review our spiritual lives, to try with the aid of Almighty God through the work of the Spirit in our hearts and minds to draw closer day by day, live those lives which is certainly worthy of his name and worthy of our calling. May God help.